0: Hi, and welcome to a special series of Off the Charts, the podcast of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. I'm your host, Robinson Meyer. I'm a reporter at The Atlantic, and I'm a journalism fellow at EPIC. For this episode, we'll be looking at ways to boost clean energy and achieve a carbon-free power sector. The Biden administration has set a deadline of 2035 for those goals. EPIC's director, Michael Greenstone, and its non-resident scholar, Steve Sakala, join us in taking a hard look at the barriers that today's fragmented grid imposes on the growth of renewables and clean energy. We're also talking about what steps the government can take to remove those barriers. But taking those steps will likely not be enough. And many in Washington, including the Biden team and some in Congress, are supporting a policy called a clean electricity standard. Though not everyone agrees on what qualifies as clean. In our conversation, we talked about transmission, oranges grown in Maine, and a $45 hamburger. So let's dig in. Michael and Steve, thanks for joining us. Michael, let's start with, can you give us A rundown of just where we stand on the electricity sector right now, like how decarbonized is it? Um, I I know it used to be the worst uh, sector for greenhouse gases; it is no longer. Like, where? What are the obstacles to decarbonizing the electricity sector, and um, uh, how how should we think about eliminating them?
1: Yeah. So. I think there's been tremendous progress in decarbonizing the electricity sector in the let's call it the last 10 or 12 years a lot of that has been driven by the advent of fracking and natural gas uh, cheap natural gas that has kind of done an amazing job of uh, knocking coal out of the system Uh, and so that right away has produced uh natural gas has about half the carbon content Uh, And then a second factor that has really come into play in the last several years, partially through policy and partially through technological advances, uh, are the rise of renewables. uh, And they, too, have contributed to decarbonization. Now, on the other side of the balance sheet, the reduction in costs from natural gas and from renewables has not just harmed coal, it's also harmed uh, carbon-free sources, uh, particularly nuclear. So, On net, there's been very large reductions in uh, carbon emissions, but I think there's a sense that it's going to be hard to really get to the 80% decarbonization rate the Biden administration wants by 2030 or complete decarbonization by 2050 without, uh, sorry, 2035 without policy.
0: Steve, from from your point of view, how would you add or uh, augment that vision of kind of the obstacles to decarbonization?
2: I would say one additional wrinkle would be that that lower price of natural gas that is sort of put coal out of the market is also reducing the revenue that renewables generators are receiving as well. And so there has been an important role for policy to uh, incentivize the construction of, say, largely wind farms and to encourage all of the technological progress that, that Michael
1: was just talking about. Policy played a really important role there. You know, Rob, if I could just add to Steve's addition to my addition, what I think, which was unstated in what I was saying, but is really maybe the starting point is currently the electricity sector is a very uneven playing field. And uh, it, that is as long as you recognize uh, that climate change is a real issue, uh, the fossil fuels continue to get a free ride by and large. So the challenge uh, is how can you reduce carbon emissions? when the sources of carbon emissions, you know, are starting at the 50-yard line and everyone else is uh, starting at the far end of the uh, playing field. And when you say that, do you mean just like it's it's free to pollute? The market, the way we have structured electricity markets mean uh, that I get to pour CO2 into the atmosphere uh, and increase the odds of disruptive climate change for, wait for it, what's the price of that? For free.
0: And so the principle... The the principal recommendation that it sounds like that you would make to the electricity sector
1: is dot, dot, dot. Obvious blackboard <laughs> economics 101. Most boring thing for economists, very complicated politically, uh, is to level the playing field and to just uh, not ban fossil fuels, uh, but penalize them equal to the damages associated their contribution to climate change.
0: Bearing a carbon price which has many political obstacles discussed in another recent epic podcast. What's another policy that might require the cooperation of Congress that would at least push the electricity sector toward decarbonization? I'm, I'm thinking specifically of the policy that uh, there's a chapter about in the epic roadmap.
1: Yeah, the uh, a terrific uh, path road to drive on is what's commonly referred to as a clean electricity standard. So the clean electricity, a clean electricity standard uh, you know, its parent is a renewable portfolio standard, which exists in about 30 states in the United States currently. And it just mandates uh, that a certain percentage of electricity be generated by carbon free sources. And the, uh, so the way to set it up would just be to say each year uh, we require a, a certain fraction. And the Biden administration signaled they would like it to be 80%, reach 80%. Uh, by 2030, and then be 100% uh, by 2035. Uh, the tricky part about uh, clean electricity standard, because uh, you you notice the word carbon is not anywhere in in the title. The tricky part is which technologies get labeled clean. And from an, again an economics standpoint, and and then never mind economics. From the planet standpoint, the planet only cares about one thing. It does not care if carbon-free electricity comes from nuclear or for wind or geothermal or whatever. It just wants less carbon emissions. And yet, the part of the politics of clean electricity standards is that there's uh, some people like some of the clean technologies better than others and want, say, wind and solar that would be canonical examples to count, but nuclear not to count. And that just creates a tension because that's a tension between what people preferred technologies are and what the planet cares about.
0: Let's say we're only interested in greenhouse gas emissions as the Biden administration has professed to be. Just how, what would a policy like that look like? How would I experience it as a rate payer? How would an electricity generating utility experience it?
1: So the, the painful part of the climate challenge is that it actually costs money. Uh, and if it didn't cost money, we wouldn't be talking about it in the sense that the carbon free technologies would be the ones we're using. Uh, so the way, uh, Rob Meyer would experience it is, uh, the, his electricity prices would be higher. Uh, and it would be higher because policy would be driving the market to choose technologies that cost more to supply the kilowatt hour of electricity, but Uh, importantly, uh, uh, I think if you account uh, for the climate damages associated uh, with using fossil fuels, it's less clear that it would actually be more expensive. But it would be more expensive in your monthly uh, bill and probably less expensive uh, in your whole life.
0: The Senate and, you know, congressional Democrats and the Biden administration are looking at various policies that they also call a clean clean electricity standard. Have you been able to look at any of the policies that are kind of on the table? Uh, and if so, what do you think about them?
1: So I think you're seeing uh, you know, some soul searching in the Democratic Party about the degree to which climate and carbon are the number one and only enemy or whether or not other goals are important. And, you know, the Biden administration signaled in the, I think they actually said in the, during the campaign they wanted a technology neutral one. So in principle, that would include nuclear and that would include hydro and some other technologies that are carbon-free that I I think people are less comfortable with for other reasons. And, you know, I think this is exactly what the legislative process has to sort out. I will just come back to, I think it's, it's so much easier to do one thing at once rather than two or three things at once. And when one tries to... Load several goals onto any policy, it gets more complicated. So if the, if you're just trying to deal with climate change, then it's really clear you want a technology neutral standard. Part of the reason renewable portfolio standards have been appreciably expensive for ratepayers is they have not been technology neutral. And, and that's because people's mixed feelings about nuclear and uh, other clean energy sources. So I, I think we're going to find out how, you know, what will be revealed is whether or not we're trying to solve one problem or multiple problems.
0: When you look at the conversation around the clean electricity standard, what do you see as being left out of it? I,
1: I think what's being left out of it is uh, almost clear from the title, a clean electricity standard. And what I think there's a terrific opportunity to do is to use a clean electricity standard to start to kind of ruthlessly search for cheaper reductions in CO2 in other parts of the economy. And the way I think that that would be feasible is you could, so the currency in a clean electricity standard is something called clean energy credits, which when you produce clean uh, energy electricity, you you get one of those. You could devise a system where those could be traded with the uh, credits issued for compliance under EPA's light-duty vehicle uh, greenhouse gas standards or the uh, fuel efficiency standards. And so that would be one way to start to search for cheaper carbon reductions uh, in the economy, building out of this structure that a clean electricity standard would have. Another one, which is even more out of the box, is I think you, right now, we have this tax credit 45Q uh, for carbon removal, but you could also uh, award uh, clean energy credits for verified uh, carbon removal. Uh, and in th- and principle, that could reduce the cost of complying with a clean electricity standard, as well as setting off all kinds of exciting innovation in carbon removal, which is, ap- which, which you look at any climate plan, that is absolutely critical that that happen. Uh, and yet we really, there's no market signal currently uh, for carbon removal.
0: That's really interesting. And so in some way, like you kind of eventually we could start to string together these different quasi markets that are coming together or I mean these I guess in your mind the way to set up a CES is to do these like clean energy credits um and to require a certain number of them rather than a fee that's imposed on on certain fuel types uh rather than uh, you know some other kind of, of policy
1: yeah I think uh yes that is at the heart of a clean electric standard is a generation of these credits and I think the broader point I'm just trying to make is right now it seems like the way that can be, this can be approached legislatively and policy wise is sector by sector. And so we have fuel efficiency standards in transport. Uh, and if this were to pass, we would have essentially standards in uh, electricity. And once you have those two things operating, why not let them talk to each other? It seems like a freebie. And then I'm throwing out this other idea, which is we got nothing for carbon rule. And why don't we get a market price and market signal going there? And, you know, who knows what we're going to find? We could, there could be all kinds of really exciting innovation that uncovers inexpensive reductions uh in uh in co2 from the atmosphere through carbon removal that could be a great pathway for confronting the climate challenge
0: that is great that's really that's really useful steve what is the role that transmission would play here and like why is transmission important to the to decarbonizing the electricity sector
2: Well, you use transmission to move power from where it's being collected, either from the wind or from the sun, to where people are using it. Uh, I think the sort of main difference between how we think about using power today in the the system that we currently have and a renewables-based one is that, you know, we currently have uh, say coal, you have some rock that you can hold in your hands and decide when you want to use it, right? You can store it over time. You just put it on a pile and come back to it when you need it. And you can take it out of the ground and move it over uh, a rail network to the places where you want to use it, all right? And so you're moving power two different ways. One is over time and the other is over space. And you have both of those things in a system designed for controlling that. We're going to decide when we're going to take it out of the ground, we're going to move it across the country on a rail network, we're going to put it on a pile and decide when we're going to burn it. And A renewable-based grid is a bit different because you don't control when the sun shines and when the wind blows, and you also don't control where either. And so those two kinds of movement of, you know, when you're collecting the power and when you're using it, you got to find a way to match those two up, right? One is moving it over space from where the sun is shining and where the wind is blowing to the cities where people actually use it, right? And then the other is moving it over time from when the wind is blowing and the sun and sun is shining and that's storage, right? That's batteries and those kinds of things. And so figuring out the combination of those two things that are gonna be economical for running a renewable grid are gonna be sort of the main problems that we need to figure out.
0: And so uh, how would you, is that even how our, our like regulatory system is built to think about these things right now? Cause clearly the technical system is not, like how do we approach this? How do we even regulate transmission right now? Uh, and, and is it working?
2: It's a mess and no. Uh, are the the short answers to to your questions? Yeah, part of it comes from just the the history of the electricity sector that was uh, predominantly a, a local one, right? You had local utilities that responded to their state regulator, and that state regulator sort of had a, a a fiefdom that everything within their borders was at their command. So if a utility wanted to build something, they had to go to their state regulator, and it was this whole you know sort of. Closed ecosystem. That is extremely counterproductive when you're trying to run a renewables-based grid, because what you're trying to do is aggregate renewable generation from all over the country and move it to the places where it's actually being used. Right? That means moving power from places where people don't really live across states where they're not going to use it to the places where people are actually going to use it. And so you have state utility commissioners thinking like, why are these power lines coming across my state? No one in my state is using this power. And even worse, you have the utilities in those states saying, any wind that comes across my territory and gets sold to the population center is power that I'd like to be selling from burning coal. And so it's now in the local utilities' economic interest to try to work with their state regulator to block those projects, right? And so you have a lot of these like local parochial interests working really full steam as hard as they can to, to stop this sort of thing from happening. It's already hard enough as it is, but this makes it much, much harder.
0: So how should we fix this?
2: So the there are these two different approaches. I think the most straightforward one that, that we're calling the, the hammer is just new legislation to basically undo the unfortunate historical accident that the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission wasn't the primary permitting venue for transmission the way that it is for oil and gas pipelines. Right. We've built thousands of miles of oil and gas pipelines over the past handful of years. And that's because if uh, a builder of that pipeline has clients that want to move that, that is basically the test. That the regulator at the federal level requires to determine that this is necessary and, you know, economically, uh, beneficial. And then FERC says it goes ahead and then barring some other complications, they build these pipelines, right? And that's why we have tons of pipelines. And it doesn't work that way for the electricity uh system. Instead, it's all broken out into these uh fiefdoms of, of state level policies. Even you know, counties can get involved in in blocking the paths of, of transmission lines. And so the you know, the main lift would be to make to give FERC the same power to authorize, you know, use of eminent domain and any of these other permitting uh issues that they have for the transmission of other fuels. Right. It's just a different kind of energy. FERC is the venue to do it. That would be, you know, I think the, the simplest way of fixing this problem.
0: And you, uh, and, and so I think you also mentioned a feather.
2: Yeah. Then the lighter touch is to say, well, you know, we're not going to get 60 votes, uh, in the Senate. Uh, we're not going to be able to, um, legislate. Uh, FERC authority, but FERC does have some backstop authority that was given to them in the, the Energy Policy Act of, of 2005, where if a state sits on an application for more than a year, And it's in this corridor that the Department of Energy designates as being sort of in the national interest. Then the federal government can can step in. That's that's been contentious. Is that like
0: a geographic corridor in the middle of the country, or is that what? Yeah. So
2: they the Department of Energy will do a study every five years to designate corridors. You know, in the in the natural national interest for the energy system. And so, you know, they can designate wind quarters of, you know, these are places that we're particularly interested in, uh In building in, you would have proposals come forward, and there are plenty of proposals already out there that if a year runs on the clock and the state doesn't approve it, then it goes to the federal level. The issue there is the state can just say no, and then the federal government doesn't have any jurisdiction, right? It's really the trying to fix dragging your feet, not outright obstructionism. So that's, you know... A lighter touch, I think maybe the more promising uh, paths forward are to sort of take cues of the limited number of transmission successes that we've had in recent years, which is to really try to minimize the use of new rights of way to the extent possible, right? So they're building high voltage direct current lines across the, the Long Island Sound, running it along the Hudson River and, and Lake Champlain, sort of disused uh, rail beds, right? If you look at maps of the United States, every line on that map short, of a state boundary is some right of way that's being used for something, right? We have highways, we have pipelines, we have existing transmission lines. All of these rights of way we could sort of think of as sort of what is the best potential use of that right of way? To what extent could those rights of way uh, serve as venues for more than one type of transportation? Whether that's running, you know, transmission lines along highways or transmission lines along rail beds, all of these things that sort of get you out of this long, uh, intractable fight with landowners and and farmers and and all these people who don't want. To see transmission lines, just say, all right, here are our existing rights of way. Let's try to make something work with that. There is a lot of space out there that already has uh, secured rights of way.
0: How much would uh, opening those rights of way, or, or how much would any of these policies? expand the renewable portfolio let's say without a clean electricity standard because i think what people hear a lot is that solar and wind are very cheap that solar i mean the iea recently said is the cheapest electricity in history in some places under some circumstances how much is transmission alone and our failure to 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 move electricity uh, uh, obstructing decarbonization and like how much would any of these policies fix it
2: uh I actually think it would be enormous. Maybe it's not widely appreciated how big a deal this would be because of the history of of the sector sort of any place you look to on the map basically has generation resources for serving the local demand in that area. The type of transformation that we're talking about here would be to you know make. Uh, the Great Plains for wind generation, what California and Florida are for oranges, right? You you like, these are the places that you go to and they produce many, many times Florida and California's consumption of orange juice. They serve the rest of the country. All right. In the same way that currently for, for fossil fuels, there's a single county in Wyoming that produces a third of the coal for the whole country. All right. Because it's incredibly cheap to make it there. We have a rail network and, and sort of that's kind of the power of being able to move energy. We have a rail network that can move energy so that a single county produces a third of the coal in the country. If you have transmission lines, you would have a wind quarter through the middle of the country. You have a sun belt in the southwest, and they would be moving many times more power than those local areas themselves actually consume. They have the potential to become economic powerhouses in this area. But, you know, from the history of it, you just sort of think of, well, there aren't many people living here. We only generate enough power for the people who actually live here. And so it doesn't really seem like a big deal. I think it could potentially be a really big deal if you give them the capacity to power faraway cities.
1: And Steve, so, do you wanna, sorry, can, can, can I ask a question? Uh, what, um, to what degree would... Just solving some of the uh, transmission constraints, problems you've been talking about, would that lead to increases in generation of renewables in the absence of a clean electricity standard Uh, and then in a world with a clean electricity standard?
2: So in a world without a clean electricity standard, uh, I think we could... I mean, in some ways, look to the the progress of of recent years, but not completely because it's not like it's been policy-free in the past few years, right? We have had renewable portfolio standards and subsidies for renewable power generation, those kinds of things. If if we were to continue to, say, subsidize renewable generation and not have a clean energy standard, I think you would get a long way there um, because it has become incredibly economical to, to build uh, these renewable sources.
1: And some of that would just knock out the construction of renewables in places that it doesn't make sense. And some of it would be net increases in renewables.
2: That's right. I mean, I think one of the maybe underappreciated gains of a national clean electricity standard is that it would do away with a lot of the insanity of local clean electricity standards where you're building like solar resources and cloudy places and uh, wind resources and places where the wind doesn't blow because you're trying to meet a within state target, right? The U.S. at large has incredible renewable resources, but they're not evenly distributed throughout the country. And so if, you know, you're trying to mandate a clean electricity standard within a narrow geographic boundary, that's going to be much more expensive than to
1: be able to do it in the the lowest cost places. So it, I, I guess it's kind of like uh, Maine mandating that all of its orange juice be produced in Maine. Insanity.
0: The, I mean, this is really, really interesting and, and in some ways. Actually, can um, I
2: add one more point yeah, on, no, top please, go, on top go of that, on top the, of the main issue is that In absolute insanity. It's nuts. So Michael was just saying that it would be kind of like uh, Maine uh, requiring all of the oranges be grown in Maine. The consequence of that, if that were the policy, is that people in Maine would drink a lot less orange juice. Orange juice would be much more expensive. They have to be in greenhouses, like all, all of this kind of crazy stuff in order to grow oranges there. We've talked about the, the grid today, but you know, one of the major challenges in decarbonizing the economy at large is going to be decarbonizing transportation. And there ultimately you're going to have an issue between what is the price of electricity and the price of fuel that you put in your tank. And so if you care about decarbonizing transportation, then you care about the price of electricity. And so these policies of like only growing oranges in Maine and consuming less orange juice as a result means that the price of electricity in these places where it's not economical to have renewables means they have less of it, means that the price of electricity there is more expensive. And so you're going to have also
1: less uh, electrification of transportation in those places. So wait a minute. The failure to have a clean electricity standard means that EV sales are going to be low in Maine. If if electricity prices are higher, there will be fewer EV purchases. And I mean, so I, I do think, think it's, it's worth down. underscoring that what Steve is doing, which is I was trying to make these connections with other sectors, is that the I think the path that the country sees for decarbonizing itself, uh, does run through uh, decarbonizing the electricity sector and then using the electricity to do all kinds of other things like uh, transport through vehicles. Uh, and just to maybe make Steve's point a second or third time, uh, If that's true, we're going to be using a lot more electricity. And it seems uh, if we want to retain popular support for these policies, it's really important uh, to find ways to produce that electricity as inexpensively as possible. The the stakes are higher than they seem because of the kind of implicit plan to use the electricity sector to decarbonize, you know, as activists say, decarbonize everything. Or electrify everything.
0: That's really, really interesting, and I think that connection between low electricity prices and, um, and and the speed of decarbonization via you know universal electrification is really important. I want to just touch on something both of you ha- have hinted at, and I, this will, I think, be familiar for Michael because I always ask about this, um, which is like, I I, I totally you know the comparison was to if we were growing oranges <laughs> it's like if a state require if maine said you have to grow all your oranges in maine um, and certainly like obviously that would be an absurd policy <laughs> for maine to pursue um but let's say that i i i guess i want to push a little bit on the idea that um Cost is the sole thing we worry about here. Uh, And that cheap always equates to politically palatable. (laughs) Because the analogy seems to me isn't just that like Maine is growing oranges. Uh, Maine requires all Mainers to consume oranges grown in state. Uh, But that Maine let's say has a large domestic grapefruit industry and for whatever reason, these grapefruits are like inducing cancer at low rates or they're inducing some problems at low rates across Maine and Maine policymakers really need people to eat oranges. But because Maine has like a thriving grapefruit industry, uh, lots of, people don't want to do that they're kind of okay with the risks and they, they their whole livelihood is tied up with grapefruits in that case wouldn't it kind of make sense for Maine to encourage some domestic orange production and isn't that a little bit kind of what these policies when they're not solely concerned with dollars and cents are thinking about that it's not just that you know we're paying higher costs for these things but actually that there are people whose whole livelihoods are tied up in producing um, fossil fuels, and part of what has to happen is we have to build. You know, Policy makers are trying to build another constituency that will support changes to the, uh, you know, to the energy system, and in fact push for them, and push against the all the people who who are tied up with fossil fuels in some way you know in that case like (laughs) wouldn't it maybe make sense for maine to uh induce some domestic orange production
2: when when economists talk about something being efficient what they're saying is that the cost of not doing this are even greater than the costs you were describing that are being borne by the sector of people currently working in, in the sector, right? We can say, you know, as, as much as we mourn those losses, what we're doing is preventing even bigger losses to society. And I think we need to hammer home. That's the reason that we're trying to do this, not out of any ill will towards those people, but to avoid even greater catastrophes. And so I'm, I'm all for, um, trying to to find ways to to buffer the the shock to those sectors but I don't think it should come at the expense of you know avoiding these even greater losses
0: at the end of the day we have a political system not an economic system <laughs> that that determines what policies get passed and that when policymakers tell us that something is important for political reasons they may not be thinking like good economists but we maybe shouldn't assume that they aren't kind of trying to reach an optimal outcome in their own way. It's just that uh, the policies that pass, as we all know, are not necessarily the ones that's, that are the most efficient. They're the ones that, that can pass. Yeah.
1: Uh, oh, go ahead, Steve, you start. Yeah,
2: I, I, would, I would just say, so this is actually um, pretty close to the the Kind of thing that I work on, and it's not in any way an uneconomic way of thinking about the problem. Uh, it's just sort of redefining what you mean by optimal. Uh, optimal is the the best of the feasible choices. Right. And so it it may not be, you know, a global carbon price. And we, you know, may be somewhat frustrated that it's not a global carbon price. But if you, you know, come to us and say, here are the politically feasible things, then what we're going to argue for is what's the best item on the menu. Uh, and so I, I am in no way averse to having a discussion of, of which of these Imperfect systems will do the best job. Uh, we, I don't think, should live under the illusion that we're going to come to a a perfect, unconstrained optimum outcome here. The, the question is what's on the menu um, to the extent that economists can be helpful in like adding things to the menu of like, well, maybe we can think about this problem a slightly different way, or there's another way of making something feasible that wasn't previously feasible. But ultimately at the end of the day, we're talking about what's on the menu and what's the best choice on the menu.
1: Yeah, let me, uh, I think I'm a green with... Steve and maybe even you, Rob. So that's probably not good for this. So, of course, uh, we live in a politically constrained world and those political constraints don't come from nowhere. They reflect people's real lived lives and those are super important. What I think is often missing, though, is there's a menu that Steve talked about, but the prices next to uh, the items on the menu are often missing. Uh, And so I think... There are instances where choices get made without a clear recognition of what the trade off was. Uh, and I think that's something that, uh, economic analysis can add. Uh, it's, it's not going to solve some deep seated political problem, but it'll at least make clear what the trade offs are, uh, and what the costs of different, uh, items on the menu are. And I think all too often, uh, the, Policy that you know people in Maine can only drink orange juice grown from Maine oranges. Uh, That kind of policy takes hold without uh, a clear sense of well, gosh, guys, how costly was that? Just you know, it sounds good. Uh, Obviously, Maine oranges, if you live in Maine, are going to be better than Florida oranges because you know it's not produced by those weird guys in Florida, produced by native Mainers. but I think it's super important that the cost of that be transparent.
0: I guess my and this is OK. So I guess my question then is, do we always know the costs? Because I think one thing that's wonderful and I really am not as I'm just taking in. Um,
1: um, I know thing, for a fact, yeah. we don't know the costs when we don't ask. One of the huge
0: benefits of carbon pricing, excuse me, is that we do we can know the cost in a way that we can't know
1: for this other technology, for for other uh, policies. Yeah. And look, let me just try and like drive it all the way across the line here. Yeah, I, know I don't think it's free to choose the expensive uh, hamburger on the menu. Uh, at the end of the day, if we're buying forty-five-dollar hamburgers when there was a five-dollar one on the menu, uh, I predict, and based on you know, I, I don't think it's a wild prediction, we're going to buy fewer of those hamburgers. Yeah, uh, and. If you bring it back to what started this conversation, which is the climate crisis, uh, I think, you know, that is a real risk to our ability to confront the climate crisis. If we're only going to buy the $45 hamburgers or the main grown orange juice or whatever your favorite analogy is and not getting the prices, uh, transparent and printed on the menu, I think is we now have a really good track record is a recipe yeah. for choosing a $45 hamburger. You know, why aren't renewable portfolio standards currently, you know, why are they not already 80%? Well, that's because it's raising electricity prices and people, you know, they get that. We are buying less of fighting carbon currently because we often do it in expensive ways. And I don't think, I think the falling on the political constraints point, uh, which is real. I'm not saying it's wrong, but I don't think that's like a perfect defense against. Uh, uh, I, I think there's limits to that argument, and that limit is it. I think will constrain what we ultimately do about climate change. How's that for defense?
0: No, that's good. That's good. I guess, and I think we could probably. I think we've successfully achieved disagreement. Uh, good. Yeah, and and. Um,
1: and we produced a $45 hamburger in Maine-grown orange juice. So those are, if, you know, <laughs> you're a journalist. If you can't run with those, those weren't even planned.
0: Exactly. That's right. That's right. Otherwise, uh, thank you both so much for being time and I'm um, looking forward to our next conversation. That's our conversation. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe to Off the Charts wherever you get your podcasts. To read more about the policy recommendations and Epic's roadmap, visit epic.com dot uchicago.edu. talk soon.